You thought that you could have it all And life could be a ball But you fell and scabbed your knee Now you can be free Hey, welcome everybody to the Recovering CEO Podcast. Uh, my name is Derek, the recovering CEO, and today we have a special guest, a uh, friend from the program. Uh, his name is Jack, sober from drugs and alcohol for over 32 years. I think it's October of uh, 1989. So, Jack, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us uh, how'd you get to AA. What what brought you here? Tell us a little bit about your story. Ah, where do I even begin? At the beginning. Um, <laughs> uh, the actual day, uh, my, my anniversary date is October 23rd, 1989. And that was a Monday is when I had my last drink. The, the previous Friday, um, well, let me just tell you this. Uh, when I got sober, let's see, it's 89, I think I was like 40-some. Let's just say that. Um, it was on a Friday morning, and I'll leave out, I'll fill in the details in a moment, that uh, I was... Uh, sleeping in bed on a Friday. I was unemployed. I had just absolutely screwed up my relationship with my wife. And I, that Friday, I, I, by that time, before my anniversary date, before my date of sobriety, I could sniff alcohol and just get absolutely wasted. My body was saturated with it. And I remember, and I never want to ever, ever, ever forget this moment, but I was laying in bed and I wanted to kill myself. It was a Friday morning, probably at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, And if I'd had a gun, I wouldn't be here talking to you. But what happened was, the the maybe a week prior that I talked to some people that I knew that were in the program and they had told me, you know, maybe you should get sober. I knew about AA. But I remember laying in bed and I'm an inch from my wife to whom I had made the vow till death do us part. And I realized that alcohol at that time had so screwed up every aspect of my life that we were like, we might as well have been on different planets. And she got up to go to work, and uh, I said, I'm not going to be here. And she said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, either I'm going to be in a treatment center or dead. And she walked out of the house, and she didn't give a shit. And I got up that Friday morning, and I said, well, let's try this recovery thing. I'm going to go to the uh, 
a detox unit that I'd heard about in Ypsilanti, and I was driving over there, probably because my body was so saturated with alcohol, I probably was driving illegally without even having taken any drink. And uh, and I got halfway there, and I said, this is totally insane. I'm going to a detox center. I knew enough from my own personal experience with mental health issues as a mental health practitioner previously to what I became vocationally that uh, I knew that uh, just detoxing was enough. I had a brother who was a, a union for the head of the union for letter carriers, and he told me about all these guys who would get wasted, and he alluded to AA and all that. I knew about it. So I drove back home, and I called this place called the Greenbrook Recovery Center, and they said, well, you can't, we don't have a bed for you, but come in on Monday. And that weekend, I probably had the best, most satisfying drunk that I had for decades. And I drove in that Monday, and that was when I stopped drinking, and I haven't had a drink since. That was October 23, 1989. How I got here, go ahead. No, I was saying that's that's amazing. That's great. So you had one last hurrah, and then you went into treatment. That was it. One right. last hurrah. All right, keep going. You're doing great. But how I got here, that and this sound may sound just totally gargantuanly egotistical, but I know now I'm 75 years old. This morning I played an hour and a half of tennis. I rode my bike for an hour, a half an hour before that. I played, I used to play tennis intercollegiately and I played with a guy who was probably one of the better people in the country and I could compete with him. So that's where I am now. The significance of that is that I know now that I have two genes that are sort of described for me who I am. One is I, I have the gene of alcoholism. That's in my body. I cannot drink. The other thing that kept me sober, ironically, for an extended period of time when I look at it retrospectively, is I, as I just alluded to, sports and athletics have been an integral part of my life, and I'm good at it, and I get better when I'm sober. But... And one of the reasons I didn't start drinking until I was 21 years old is because I was always doing sports and I was concerned about how that alcohol would interfere with that. Um, I realize now there's certain other attributes that I have as a human being that were submerged in my alcohol, but I know now that the most important, the, the, what I sort of knew a long time ago is that I have this disease of alcoholism. I grew up in the 60s. I played intercollegiate basketball and I played tennis. And I remember I went to a school in Michigan, and I was on the tennis team. I played basketball. I went over to Europe on a foreign study. I played on a basketball team over there. The interesting thing about it is that's the first time I really drank anything because when I was back in the States, 
I was concerned about how alcohol might interfere with, you know, my education and everything else. But when I came back from Europe at that time, I was 21, the door was now open. And the other thing that was going on, because this was the mid-60s, so was marijuana. And so I started toking and I started drinking, and one thing led to another. And I was involved in the whole Vietnam thing, not in the military, but the culture of what was going on at that particular time. And I got thrown out of college, and ironically, I got busted for possession. At that time, it was a felony. And at that time, when I got busted for possession, I was drinking my brains out. Even then, when I look at it retrospectively, I was, uh, I knew that I, I, when I started to drink, it was hard to stop. I sort of saw that as, okay, that's good. I mean, I'm doing something legal. Well, coincidentally, I'm also doing something illegal, and I got busted, put on two years probation. It was a felony at that time. And, um, and one thing led to another, and I uh, I couldn't drink while I was on probation. When I look at it retrospectively, I, I was on the wagon in alcoholics' terms. I couldn't drink. The sports kept me from drinking. But now I wasn't doing sports on an intercollegiate level or on any organized level. I got done with my probation, and bam, I started drinking again. Now, in my experience with alcohol, and I should, you know, well, let me just say this. I got thrown out of school. I went back to college. I got my bachelor's degree. I ended up getting a master's degree in social work. And I remember taking a psychopathology course while I was studying for that degree, and it it was all about psychological diagnoses, and I remember reading with a lot of interest alcohol. Because I think at that time I realized that there was this thing that was happening to me. And, in fact, in reality, when I was getting that master's degree, I would go over to this bar across the street from the university where I would take classes. It was twice a week, and I'd get hammered. I mean, that's the only way I knew how to drink. And uh, and and But what I learned, I learned about alcohol. I learned about the DTs. I I learned about something called Korsakoff syndrome, which is a personality change that's associated with high consumption. I, I and so I really had it's sort of an interesting. Uh, I wanted to learn about alcohol because well, I think I, I I think I I figured well this. The, the, I'm reading about this stuff. It sort of reminds me of it. And but I managed to get this master's degree. I got a job, great job, Children's Psychiatric Hospital. And I met my wife, and she sort of thought that maybe, you know, I always wanted to go to law school, and so I did. But through that whole period of time, and I can say that was almost a decade from when I got busted on the probation to when I got to law school, I was always drinking on a daily basis. When I was in law school, I would restrict my consumption to maybe a 
I, I forgot what you'd call it now, but it was like a, a beer that's a big bottle of beer. I didn't want to screw that up. I had a commitment to a wife. I was actually playing really great tennis. I was fairly clean. But I had certain things happen in my life, maybe two or three, managed to pass the bar examination first time, did fairly well in law school. And I ultimately ended up in a situation where I had a job that was just a killer. And I also had a situation where I, my mother died. Now, that was profound. It was heavy duty. And what happened is when I, it, it just started to kick in. And now that I know about it more, alcoholism, you can, what happened to me is I plateaued. There was like a decade where I could just drink on a daily basis and didn't interfere too much. What I know now is when you, there comes a point in time when just on a daily basis, if you do it enough, your body becomes so saturated, it doesn't, the craving isn't just satisfied with one or two beers. You need more, and that's what happened to me. And so when I was drinking in mourning for my mother dying, when I was drinking because I was just absolutely deluged in, in this firm that I worked for, I drank more and more, and that's when it started to kick in. And I matriculated from just doing beer to doing doing harder stuff. And one thing led to another, and I was it was affecting my to some extent it was affecting my work. But I was I we mutually agreed this one firm I was working at to part ways. When I you know probably it was the alcohol that was detected, whatever. But the level of consumption never stopped. It got worse. And if any of you know what the Jelinek chart was or is, it's Jelinek is a psychiatrist. I think someplace out east that tracks the degradation of an alcoholic. It should plummet down into what he described as death, insanity, or recovery. Uh, that's what was happening. And so I drank more secretively. I never went anywhere without having alcohol. If I was, I married into a huge family. Uh, my wife is one of 14 kids, and, and so there would always be family events on her side. And wherever we went, I always had alcohol stash somewhere. And lo and behold, it ultimately, another decade later almost, it caught up to me. I couldn't hold a job. I can't say that I was fired, but I wasn't as productive as people would have liked me. And part of that was is because I always had travelers wherever I went. I always, I never drank on the job. That was an excuse. That was a justification for uh, concluding I wasn't an alcoholic. But one interesting episode took place. I had the opportunity to have some blood work done. Uh, as part of a uh, program that my wife's business or her work was associated with. So I had this blood work, and they sent it back to me, and it was the strangest. Well, it wasn't strange, but it, I opened up, got the envelope, got the – I didn't show it to my wife. It was addressed to me. And sure enough, it showed that I had cirrhosis, which 
any of you, well, it said cirrhosis in it, the, who remember the diagnostician with, said it's either associated with high rates of alcohol consumption or um, you just have one of these anomalies. People can have cirrhosis of the liver, but it, it's non-alcoholic related. I re remember representing a woman on getting Social Security benefits, and she had that issue with her liver, but she didn't drink. But cirrhosis will kill you. So all of a sudden now I was confronted. And by the way, getting back to the sports, there was a doc I used to play with who was the shittiest tennis player on the face of the earth. And we used to go out and play on Sunday mornings. And at that time, you couldn't buy alcohol on Sunday, so I would have to store up in order to play with him, and I was drinking hard stuff. So I'd have a fifth of pop-offs in the trunk of my car, and I'd have to swig down enough to keep me from not shaking too much while I was holding the tennis racket. And I can remember towards the end of our before I got sober, there was one time where I didn't have any alcohol. So I go around in the tennis court. I could barely hold the tennis racket because I was shaking, shaking so damn much. And I remember him saying to me very compassionately, are you sick? Well, I knew damn well what it was. And that was beginning, the telltale signs were obvious. I knew what was going on from my education 15 years or so before that time. I knew that I was declining physically because of that test. I couldn't do my sports anymore. I could barely, uh, I was lying up a storm. I mean, my wife, I think she knew, but she claims that she wasn't aware. But I know she knew. I knew other people knew. And I finally got to that point where it was just, I'd lost the position. And all I did was I'd get up in the morning and go down to the store. I remember I went down to a, party store down the way, my wife would be gone, I'd go in and get a pint of pot, I mean a half, a half of, what is it, I can't even remember now what size of they are, but it was a great big bottle of pop-off, so it wasn't a half gallon, I guess you'd call it a quart, I'm not sure. Yeah. And uh, pop-off, I mean, pop-off, and I remember one time some gal said, you must be an alcoholic, <laughs> this is like 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I said no. I'm getting off work. Well, I heard. Oh I heard every, I've heard that every alcoholic eventually goes to vodka because you can't really smell it, so it's the easiest to get away with, and it's cheap. You can get it. So I've heard it, it all all goes towards vodka at the end. Well, that was my rationale. Yeah. And the other thing is, is I used to, you know, go five years prior to this time. I never drank in the morning, but by the time I was going in this party store and buying this fifth, or is that what it is, a fifth of vodka, I mean, I was drinking every morning. So that takes me to the point of when I was laying in bed next to a person I truly loved, loved to this day. We have our issues, but, and I wanted to die. I knew about AA. I knew enough to get myself in a treatment center. And when I got in there, I parked that car, and three weeks later, I left. 
and I learned a boatload of stuff. I got myself sobered up, got myself to a point where my liver functions are okay or whatever, and now they are. It took a while to get them back, but uh, it was a great experience. So that's how I got to AA. Yeah. So what happened once you got sober, Jack? Uh, did things turn around? Was it a tough, tough road to get sober? Uh, not for me. And the reason it wasn't is because when I went into the treatment center, there was a guy there. His name was Dr. Russell Smith. And for any of you that know, there was the wife of Gerald Ford. Her name is Betty Ford. Got sober in Michigan. Her husband, who was president. Ford was a U of M grad, and this guy was a doc from Michigan, U of M Medical School, came from Grand Rapids, Russell Smith, and he was the founder of Help Betty Ford found this treatment center out in Palm Springs, California, but he also set up some treatment programs in Michigan, one of which was a thing called the Greenbrook Recovery Center, and when I, fortuitously, I get sober or I go into this place, and he happens to be there. He would circulate around the country to go to his various clinics that he helped establish, and he happened to be there when I was there. So we actually got to be some friendly. And uh, and so I, you know, and I think he took an interest in me, and uh, we would talk about alcohol. I knew what it was. I knew medically what it was all about. I know more now medically is what it's about. But he just, for all intents and purposes, I remember when I was walking out the door, I went through all his didactic lectures. I went, I was going to a meeting a day. The one thing that he said to me, don't think that the world's going to stop drinking just because you found Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never forgotten that. And Maybe I should take a step back. My first night in that treatment center, one of the reasons I knew I had to go in there is because I had to detox and literally be detoxed because my body was so saturated with alcohol, it would be lethal if I just tried it on my own. I thought so. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed and this nurse came up to me. First of all, I go in there at 12 o'clock. They shoot me up with phenobarbital. I'm out like a light. And I'm sitting, I wake up, and I'm sitting on the end of my bed in the detox center, and this woman comes up to me, and her name is uh, Maggie. And she said, you know, I read your chart. You've been helping people a lot. It's time for you to get help. And she said that, does everybody in this program that you're going to meet has something to do with this program called Alcoholics Anonymous? The next day, I got the big book. I got the 12 and 12, which is 12 steps and 12 traditions, and I got my daily reader, which is right in front of me, and it's still here. It's, it's weather-beaten and a whole deal, but it's my touchstone. And I read the 12 and 12, and I, I read those steps. And I said, there's all sorts of stuff in there that I had no idea how I was going to deal with. Um, but it's, I remember what she told me. 
she was like a guardian angel. She said, we're going to be here to help. And that was it. And so I started, read, read this stuff. Came to believe that I was powerless out of, over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. I mean, here I am. Wanting to commit suicide. I mean, I guess that's the, the ultimate of unmanageability. And then I read in there, came to believe that the power greater than itself should restore us to sanity. Well, oops, there's that word in there, empowered. I read that, and they talked about God. I grew up with nothing like that. And, but I knew that I'd have to come to grips with it some way, because when I read the text of the 12 and 12, it gave me an explanation how to do it. And then it says, turn our lives on a willow with the care of God as we understood him. And I thought, okay, well, i got to deal with this God issue. And probably many of you out there have done, have done, dealt with that same issue. And then fourth, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I knew about that because I was involved in mental health issues, psychiatry, and all the rest of it. And in fact, at one point in time when I was drinking my brains out, I went to a shrink thinking, okay, I'll just talk around not being intuitive enough to think there was a relationship between my aberrant behavior and the alcohol, not wanting to believe that. And then it says, admitted, step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our lives. Well, that's going to a shrink. And I knew all about that. I knew that that could be good. And then step six says, we were entirely ready to have God remove all our defects of character. I mean, I knew what those defects were. If nothing else, it was that I was drank too much, but I was also a prick, et cetera, et cetera. And then step seven says, humbly asking to remove our shortcomings. And I'm reading this the first time around thinking, okay, there's parts of this that I can do. This is second day in the treatment center. And then it, step eight said, made a list of all persons we had harmed. Ah, I skipped a step. Step seven says, Humbly asking to remove our shortcomings, which was really interesting because I had no idea what this thing word humbly meant. And I said, but I think I can do that. Then I said, made a list of all those who had hired and become willing to make amends for them all. And I thought, oh, God, well, I have to do it, but that makes sense because if I want to get my life squared away. And then uh, step nine said, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so with this one of them and others. And I thought, okay. I, I guess I got to do this, and I know I do because there's my wife out there. I got a, a parents, brother, et cetera, et cetera. I can go on and on with that. And then it says, step ten, continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted. Well, the first thing I thought about with regard to that, I was always making, uh, I was always apologizing for something. I mean, that was my cop out of getting out of everything. Step 11, thoughts of prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Well, there's that God word again, as we understood in praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry us, carry that out. And the interesting thing, and then it talks about in the 12th step, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry the message, this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles all in our affairs. And so when I got done reading that, that was the second day that I was there. I thought to myself, all the people I knew in my civilian life that had any level of what I would call serenity were people that had some faith. Now, I can remember a social worker friend of mine who I was very, very close to who was 
admitted himself he's a born-again Christian. I wouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination that I've gone to the same, the same extent that he did, but he believed in something. And so I thought, okay, that's what i got to do. i got to somehow or another figure out how to associate with these steps. Now, the beauty of the treatment center is every day I was at a meeting. Every damn day. That's all I learned. I learned and I learned and I learned. And ultimately, I got out and I remember driving home, passing every watering hole that I would ever make, going right by it. And then I remember uh, I went to one meeting and I met a guy named Marv. And he was my early sponsor. And he took me through this process. And one thing that I remember about Marv more than anything else, he played basketball at Lake Superior State. And we would go up to North Campus at U of M and play basketball. And it was like, oh, my God, there's something here that I used to do that's good. And lo and behold, I picked up the tennis ring. Now, this was sometime further along the way, but I started getting back into it. If I, I were to take the, the 12 and 12 right now and tell you, for me, one of the most important concepts is found in Step 5 on page 58, where it says, another dividend we may expect from confiding our defects to an, another human being is humility. Now, there's more to that, than, but I will tell you that my association with people led to confiding, to being open, going to meetings. I, I, my, I, I was going to 180 and 180 to 360 and 360. I, I, I went... Probably for a couple years, going virtually every day, and also having a prescription of antibodies because I didn't trust myself. But I got accustomed to dealing with meeting people and talking to people and confiding with people, and I would do that in meetings, and I would do that with my sponsors and other people. But it says there another great dividend we may expect from confiding our defects. To another human being is humility, a word often misunderstood. And this is the kicker. To those of you, to those who have made progress in AA, it amounts to a clear recognition of what and who we really are. Well, who am I? I'm an alcoholic. I don't, I never want to forget that. I never want to forget that time when I was laying in bed and I was with somebody who I had made vows to, and we were worlds apart. I never want to forget that, because I am an alcoholic, and that's what alcoholism can drive me to. But it goes on. It, let me just read that again. It amounts to a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could be. And I think probably when I first read that, it probably resonated with me, but it, it it resonates even more importantly with me now than it did back 
at that because it's all about what you can be. You know, you hear, and through the years, I know you take a day at a time. That's what I do. Through the years, uh, you go to meetings, and that's what I do. Uh, I do inventories in the evening. I do inventories when I get into a brouhaha with somebody. And the, what I found over the 30-some years, I have evolved on so many levels, it's unbelievable. I mean, I got my profession back. I got to the point where people in the profession act, actually had me chair the Lawyer and Judges Assistance Program for the state uh, committee for the State Bar of Michigan. I held that position for three years. I helped the State Bar establish a program for alcoholics. I got to the point where I would go to law schools and, and talk about my alcoholism to the extent that I was offered a job teaching. So I, to this day, I still teach. Um, I'm not and, and to be perfectly candid, most of my students and probably a number of the faculty know who I am and what I am. Um, I, I got, I had great advancements in terms of my job, my work. I'm still working on a part-time basis. I could retire, but I don't want to. But the bottom line is, I get up each day, and I'm not as ritualistic as some people I know that pray and all the rest of it. I get up, and I realize that my my responsibility is to do unto others as I would have them do unto you, and I go forward, and I try to live in the moment. Do I stay there in that moment? Hell no. You know, I get wound up about what the future brings. I'm getting older. But the reality is, this morning I played tennis for an hour and a half with a guy who five years ago represented the United States of America in the 55 and over world tournament and won it. And here I am playing tennis with this guy. It's the most gratifying thing that I can possibly imagine. I mean, I got all the gratitude in the world, but that's the, the, the one thing I would say to any one of you, to me, there was no greater form of explanation of how we can live as human beings than the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the people that I know from the very beginning, like Marv, Dale, and some other people, just drill that into my psyche. I live this. The most important thing in my life is Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> you know, I alluded to the fact that my wife was one of 14. They're Catholic. I, I grew up with no religion. You have no idea how many times I've been asked to read at funerals or to be a part a part of a marriage ceremony. <laughs> and it's because I, for some reason, you know, the people trust me. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-boggling in some respects. But I understand because I try to live by the tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous. Nothing's more important to me. 
period. You guys aren't. The members are listening. Derek isn't. My wife isn't. Nobody is. Nothing's more important than that because I wouldn't have anybody if I didn't have alcoholism. To those who have made progress in AA, humility means it amounts to a clear recognition of when and who we really are, followed by the sincere attempt to become what we could be. We can evolve on a daily basis. I remember when my father was dying, he was 98 years old, probably 12, 14, and I did the hospice thing. I was feeding him the morphine. And he was dying. And I knew he was dying. And I was, in some respects, I, I was helping. But because of who I have ultimately become, because of this program, I could help him in the way, the only, in a way that was beneficial to him as well as my brother, sister, and family. If I'd been drinking, that was no way that would happen. No way whatsoever. None. Period. So, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about this except I am so absolutely thrilled about the opportunity of being associated with other alcoholics. The opportunity of being able to grow. I'm not done yet. I got a ways to go, I hope. But I do know one thing. I got to go shovel the snow. And that's just about as far ahead of myself as I dare to get. There's other things I know on the calendar that are going, but that's the next right thing to do is shovel snow. And there'll be something else. Very true. Very true. Any, any advice you want to give, Jack, to a newcomer who might be listening to this? Go to meetings. Don't drink and go to meetings. Don't drink. Yeah. That's it. And, and frankly, any newcomer, I've been to tables where the people keep drinking. And I've been to the tables where people keep drinking, they come to the tables, and then they die. You know, they may profess to be, understand, but just go to the Go to tables. Don't drink. Want just today. I'm lucky because I didn't have the urge. I saw once I met with Dr. Russell Smith, I heard some of his stories, et cetera, et cetera. I knew who I was. I didn't want to die. I didn't know what was going to happen to me, but go to meetings and don't drink. Period. And, and to be perfectly candid, even if you don't go to meetings, don't drink. 
Alcoholism is all about drinking. I don't think, I think you got to do the meetings to stay sober, but if you want to stay sober on a daily basis, don't drink. I don't, you, then you'll become a dry drunk is what it's called, but that's okay. Maybe at some point in time you begin to figure out what the program's about. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, great story, Jack. Uh, wonderful. I'm glad you made it. And it seems like just remove the alcohol and then you could become the person that you were always meant to be, the person you always wanted to be. So, and, and you're not, you're not I done, can't. right? You still got, still got a lot more to give. Oh my God. I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg. You know, I was talking to this guy this morning and that I played with and we were both exhausted but reveling in the fact that we had accomplished something. Now, he's not an alcoholic, but just the very fact that I helped him grow, he helped me grow. On my part, it's because I'm sober. You get to learn who you are. All right. Well, Jack, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with our listeners and uh, thanks for being a great example for other people in recovery out there. Well, I'm glad. I hope I've helped. I hope I've helped. For sure. For sure. And to all of you listening, uh, this is the Recovering CEO podcast. Keep coming back. Tell a friend and share this. Jerry, uh, you can share Jack's open talk with your friends. So keep coming back and have a good day. Thanks. You thought that you could have it all And life could be a bar But you fell and scabbed your knee